Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. This is Kareen. And this is Heather. I am beyond excited for this episode. We had the honor and incredible opportunity to learn about women's cardiovascular health from the Dr. Martha Gulati. She is an international leader in women's cardiovascular disease and has been immensely productive from a research standpoint, bridging the gaps of knowledge in women's cardiovascular disease. Beyond that, she is really a leader in patient education through her role in CardioSmart. During this episode, we discuss the specific risk factors that are unique to women, but also the way in which classic cardiac disease like coronary artery disease presents and is managed in women. She touches on such a broad range of high-yield topics that are relevant to really anyone taking care of women. She is a true inspiration and trailblazer for female physicians, and we are so excited to share this episode with you. Please be sure to follow her on Twitter at Dr. Martha Gulati. And friends, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. Cardio nerds, this is Corrine. We are super excited to bring to you this very special episode featuring one of our heroes, Dr. Martha Gulati. Dr. Gulati completed medical school at the University of Toronto, Canada, and her internship, residency, and cardiology fellowship at the University of Chicago. She previously served as the Sarah Ross Sauter Chair in Women's Cardiovascular Health and the Section Director for Women's Cardiovascular Health and Preventive Cardiology at Ohio State University. She currently serves as Division Chief of Cardiology at the UA College of Medicine in Phoenix. She is also Editor-in-Chief of ACC's CardioSmart. Dr. Gulati has made incredible contributions to researching cardiovascular disease in women. She is the principal investigator of the St. James Women Take Heart Project, a co-investigator on the Women Ischemic Syndrome Evaluation, WISE, previously served as a co-investigator on the Women's Health Initiative, WHI. She's a member of numerous advisory boards and societies, including the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, and she's published articles in prominent journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, Circulation, and Journal of the American Medical Association. She is also the best-selling author of Saving Women's Hearts. Dan chiming in here, I have so much gratitude to Dr. Gulati for her help with social media. Believe it or not, I became exposed to hashtag cardio Twitter within the last two or three years. And that's because one of my dear mentors, Aaron Mikos, showed me the light. I quickly became a huge fan of Dr. Gulati and found her to be so accessible with many other cardiology greats of our time. The whole experience really became one of the basis of using technology for cardio ed. And it was one of the sparks for the Cardio Nerds podcast. Dr. Gulati, we are just so giddy to have you on the show today. I Well, I am in the presence of people I admire very much because I didn't know who the secret cardio nerds were. 
we're just a bunch of trainees in a garage somewhere. Always <laughs> <laughs> parts in a garage, you know that. Yeah, you know, I, uh, Dr. Gulati, I just want to reiterate everyone's excitement and enthusiasm for having you on the show. And and you all know uh, my wife really decides a pediatrician. She's actually a neonatology fellow. And if I ever want to sleep on the couch, I just have to tell her that taking care of kids is just no different from taking care of small adults. But of course, that's not true. And as a father, I am so thankful for our pediatrician. But surely women are just men without a Y chromosome. I mean, I'm glad we're doing this episode. Don't get me wrong. But why is there so much interest in women's cardiovascular health? What's the big deal? Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, wow. Wow. I wish you could show eye rolling in an oh. audio recording. <laughs> I'm yeah. so glad I'm doing this remotely and I'm not sitting next to any of you right now. Well, similarly, women have been told that we're just small men, and we know that's not true, right? Um, right. We know that. <laughs> I, 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 moved away. I moved away from that phrase. Dr. Gladdy, we haven't met, but I'm a very average-sized person, and I know many women that could take me without any hesitation. <laughs> well, I think that that's the important reason for this discussion, because you know the XX chromosomes and an XY there's genetic differences. And actually that translates not just for physical appearance of being a woman versus being a man, but sex exists in every cell. So every cell has an XX and will behave slightly differently to certain stressors as will an XY cell. And I think recognizing that makes us appreciate the differences between men and women that are so vast. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And and I know I'm going to get a lot of haters for the way I asked that question, but I just want our listeners to know that that was purely for dramatic effect. Of course, women's health is important and deserves way more attention than it gets. Go red for women. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. definitely. Uh, <laughs> go, go red for women. And yeah, I was really nervous of it and I was about to like uh, dissociate myself from you. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No one could have any hate from it. Dr. Glani, thanks for the wonderful intro highlighting the need to educate our audience on cardiovascular issues specific to women. And with that, Heather, why don't you go ahead and take the first patient that we'll discuss and present to Dr. Galati today? Dr. Galati, I'm so glad you're here because our first case needs a lot of expert attention. Jacqueline Flowers is a 31-year-old G1P1 woman with a history of obesity, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Her one delivery was actually preterm. She also has a history of lupus, and she presents to the emergency department with chest pain. After an initial negative troponin I, she is about to be discharged from the emergency room with reassurance from Dr. Picasso that she's young without major risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and her chest pain is labeled as totally atypical. Now that sounds like a fairly common type of encounter, but I'm sure there's a ton to unpack here. Dr. Gulati, please help us break this down. Is Dr. Picasso right about the lack of major risk factors? How do you define atypical chest pain? And are you as reassured as Dr. Picasso? Yeah, well, that's a good case. I would say first, I don't disagree with Dr. Picasso, and I hope he's listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not just, yeah, it's true. A 31-year-old definitely is somebody who's lower risk than, say, a 50 to 60-year-old woman. But the risk factors are screaming at you. And so she's not someone without risk factors. And really, I mean, you kind of you already listed them there. Obesity is certainly a risk factor. The The autoimmune disease that she has is a risk factor. The history of 
preeclampsia and her pregnancy is a risk factor. And so this is somebody with risk enhancers that already are present. And this is putting somebody at a higher risk. There's also, I believe you said that she had polycystic ovarian syndrome. You know, that depending on the evidence that you look at, some associate it with a greater cardiovascular risk. There's some data that didn't show it, but we do know that people with polycystic ovarian syndrome have a tendency towards metabolic syndrome. And so depending on her body habitus, but depending on her other risk factors that we didn't even get into, she may be at greater risk for heart disease, even with that alone. But with all of these together, she's saying I'm a higher risk than a regular 31-year-old. If she already had diabetes or was pre-diabetic, I mean, to us, once you have diabetes, you kind of lose that protection of age. And so again, better history taking might tell us some of that story and help us know. And of course, our examination, if this is someone actually at greater risk than just a regular 31-year-old without any risk factors. Don't even get me going on the fact that somebody's labeled her symptoms as atypical because that's a discussion (laughs) in and of itself that we should probably divide a little bit. But from risk assessment standpoint, you know, this is the great thing about the update in 2018 about risk assessment. And a lot of these risk factors have been identified as risk enhancers and should be taken into account when we're actually assessing risk in a woman. So if you want me to talk about her symptoms, and of course, they weren't described to us, but he labeled her as atypical. And, and you know, I, I really trying to convince people that that's actually not true. First of all, when we say typical angina, the typical symptoms, That's one thing. We're saying these are characteristics that we identify more likely associated with angina or an infarction or ischemia that we recognize. When we use the word atypical, even as it was described by Dr. Picasso, you know what he was saying. He wasn't saying that this was an atypical presentation of angina. He was saying, I don't believe your symptoms. Get out of my emergency room. So we really need to first define atypical. Atypical means that you presented a little bit differently than expected. But yet when I have a fellow or resident running up to me, well, they're never running. When they say uh, this person has atypical chest pain, they're telling me this is not cardiac. That is different than, than saying atypical. And additionally, we have a lot of evidence nowadays that actually women present more typically. And so It's just how we hear a woman's symptoms. Women are more likely to describe other symptoms along with chest pain or chest pressure or chest tightness. I think we sometimes get distracted by the other symptoms they describe. So there was a study, you guys are probably familiar with the Virgo study. It was the Mm -hmm. study, uh, technically its name was Variation in Recovery, the Role of Gender on Outcomes in Young Acute MI MI Patients. And that study was specifically looking at men and women under the age of 55 and looked at their symptoms because we really don't know much about that group. Well, they actually said that 90% of young women and young men presented with the classic symptoms of chest pain, pressure, chest tightness or chest discomfort. The only difference between men and women is that women were more likely, again, young women were more likely to describe three or more additional non-chest pain symptoms compared with men. So so we need to be listening to Mm -hmm. them. Another study that recently at ESC 
was released called the Hermes study. It was released at ESC in 2019. And we haven't seen the paper actually written up, but we just got the data presented to us there. They used artificial intelligence using cardiolinguistics to listen into the conversation. If it heard the typical symptoms of angina, it just said, I heard it. So what they found there was the same thing. 90% of women had the typical symptoms who went on to have ischemia. The fact was, is that atypical symptoms were actually very less common in women, but they were also described by men. And we haven't seen this paper yet, but it's certainly interesting. And I thought it was a great, I couldn't wait to hear it when I was there. I'm anxiously awaiting the paper to be published. Now, the third study that came out also at ESC and simultaneously published in JAHA in 2019, they actually also looked at this using the high stakes data that, you know, the people that describe the high sensitivity troponins, and they had a wealth of data on symptoms. And they described typical symptoms as pain in the chest, arm, jaw, dull pain, heaviness, tightness, pressure, aches, squeezing, crushing, or gripping. And then atypical symptoms were everything else. And they actually said, showed that those people who went on to have a myocardial infarction, women were more likely actually to have the typical symptoms than have atypical symptoms. Actually, men actually Mm. had more atypical symptoms, but it was much more likely that they had the atypical cluster of symptoms. So I, one, I want us to, our public health message should be that, you know, to patients that atypical symptoms are common in women and men. And secondly, that we as a medical community probably need to get away from using that word atypical anyway, because it's been misconstrued in our medical community. Again, think about it. The last time you heard atypical, it wasn't that they were saying to you, this someone is presenting a little differently. It was them saying, I don't believe that this patient has angina. Right. Right. Very helpful, Dr. Lottie. So for practical purposes, if I was in the emergency room and I'm evaluating a patient with chest pain and they do throw at what we used to term atypical symptoms, are you saying that we shouldn't use those symptoms to kind of take me away from a cardiac etiology for the chest pain? Well, there is symptoms that might be less common. And certainly if you want to If you're listening to those symptoms and you're saying, well, this is a different presentation of a myocardial infarction, but look at all her risk factors, you know, that's a different story than dismissing the symptoms. Ah, very good. Very good. Uh, So Dr. Galati, the traditional risk assessment tools don't seem to incorporate these gender-specific risk factors that we kind of talked about at the takeoff of the episode. How do you recommend um, practicing cardio nerds incorporating these risk factors into their preventative strategies with the patients outside of the emergency room, now back in the primary care or general cardiology clinic? Again, the 2018 update to risk assessment or to cholesterol guidelines when they talked about assessment of risk, they actually did add in those risk enhancers. And it's important that people use them, even though in the ASCBD risk calculator, they don't really enter. The only thing sex specific that enters is whether you're male or female. But you must be aware of both the differences in traditional risk factors based on being male or female, how they affect cardiovascular risk. But then you need to know what are those risk enhancers. And you know, that that's part of our history taking is that we should know those. And so the way 
I describe it or the way that I incorporate it, I guess, is I, after I assess their ASCVD risk, then I ask, well, is there anything about them else that's high risk? So if they have a family history, certainly I put that as obviously a risk enhancer. If they're high risk women and specific group that I want you to think about is people who are veteran women. I think the veteran women, they have much greater cluster of traditional cardiovascular risk factors, as well as non-traditional risk factors. And we can talk about that more if you want to. But then the next step is to actually ask, what sex-specific risk factors does this woman have? And those things are things about their pregnancy. So their pregnancy history, those adverse pregnancy outcomes that we should be asking about, specifically the ones that we have the strongest data is gestational hypertension of any sort, not just preeclampsia and eclampsia, but if they had any type of gestational hypertension, it's important to note that. If they had uh, gestational diabetes, it's important to ask that as well. And the other one that we have a lot more data is about preterm delivery. Did they deliver before 37 weeks? And then even greater if they delivered before 32 weeks, no matter what the cause is, puts them at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. There's also data supporting having a child small for gestational age that also increases the risk. There's some other things about pregnancy that we are learning more about, but the data isn't quite as strong. And I think we still need some time to know whether we should be incorporating that. Other things that you should ask a woman is about fertility treatment. Um, Certainly now... IVF doesn't increase your risk, it seems, for future cardiovascular disease, but it does increase the risk for hypertension during pregnancy. So at least asking, did you go through that? Did you have any hypertension during your pregnancy? Because that may also predict future risk. If they're, uh, as a woman, are they on birth control? Um, And specifically in smoking women, that matters. If they're on hormone replacement therapy for a postmenopausal woman, important to consider. Uh, Breast cancer history, again, more likely in women. And the treatments related to breast cancer increase the risk. And a lot of the risk factors for breast cancer are actually the risk factors for heart disease. So it kind of serves dual purpose. And then the last thing for women that you should ask is premature menopause, because whether surgical or natural, we have a lot of data showing that that accelerates cardiovascular risk. Then the next part, I ask about female predominant conditions. And specifically right now, that is those autoimmune diseases. The inflammatory diseases are much more common in women. And lupus and rheumatoid arthritis are the ones that we have the greatest evidence. So you should be asking about that. And in this particular patient that we were talking about, certainly that was the case that she had an autoimmune disorder that is strongly associated with accelerated cardiovascular risk. I think that's how you personalize risk assessment. We're not going to do genetic testing on every person right now. And additionally, in the emergency room, you're not going to do genetic testing. But genetics starts with sex. And that's easy. You just ask, what sex are you? And you can already have your genetic testing done in a matter of one question. 
That's incredible and very helpful, Dr. Galati. I really appreciate your review of female-specific and female-predominant risk factors. And in my practice, I don't think I've ever asked a woman anything about adverse pregnancy events in the past as a risk modifier. So that it'll certainly be practice changing for me. But what about the traditional risk factors that I do um, have the habit of asking about, like smoking, diabetes, etc.? Do these risk factors impart the same level of risk to both genders? Yeah, they don't. And that, that's what makes it so interesting. And that, that's what makes medicine so interesting and humans so interesting and the difference between men and women so interesting. But for women who smoke, although there's less smokers, thankfully, across the United States due to huge public health efforts, um, we've seen that reduce and certainly less women smoke in the United States compared to men. But a woman who smokes she has actually greater vascular effects for the same number of cigarettes compared to a man. So there's something biologically more insulting mm -hmm. to a woman based on cigarette smoking that we need to be aware of. And then there's so much more that we need to learn about, you know, e-cigarettes and vaping and everything else that we still don't know enough about. Diabetes, of course, much more prevalent in women than in men. And the effect of diabetes to a woman is much greater in terms of cardiovascular risk than it is for a man. So, and then not to even mention the things that we already briefly touched upon, the gestational diabetes that can only happen in women and polycystic ovarian syndrome that's obviously relevant to this particular patient, you know, that can only happen in a woman. Hypertension, you know, again, is actually more prevalent in women and there's now some emerging data that maybe, you know, at least for stroke risk, maybe a greater issue for women than it is for men. Other things like physical fitness um, or, or your cardiorespiratory fitness, if you will, women are less likely to be physically fit than compared to men through at all stages of their life. But the effect of being poorly fit in a woman, based on some of the work we did, actually showed that it may have more adverse consequences to women. There's other things like depression, much more prevalent in women that we address really poorly, but may have more effects on cardiovascular disease, particularly on people who already have cardiovascular disease or have had prior uh, open heart surgery and may have more cardiovascular effects in terms of the secondary uh, events. That's super interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah. In terms of the mechanism behind it, you know, sort of traditionally, classically, we're taught that the increased risk in women, you know, you really see that um, in the postmenopausal period due to the decrease in estrogen. But we do see a lot of younger women have higher risk of cardiovascular disease, as you mentioned, with all these additional risk factors. Is there any idea about what the mechanism behind that might be? Yeah, I think we made a lot of assumptions. I just want to tell you about this whole postmenopausal estrogen, yeah, everything. Yeah. Because, you know, there was that beautiful paper. I just want to use hypertension as an example. But there was yes. a really amazing paper that was just published in JAMA Cardiology in January. And it made me question everything, to be honest with you. We, we thought that there was something at menopause that changed, for example, blood pressure in women, and that suddenly blood pressure increased when a woman was postmenopausal. 
And what we found in that paper by, by using four cohorts of women and comparing the same four cohorts of men, we actually saw, first of all, blood pressure, of course, is lower in women. Mm-hmm. But the trajectory of change over time was actually not something magically turning on at menopause, but actually increasing over the lifetime of a woman. And that the trajectory or the slope of increase was much greater in women, which now made me question, do we even know what's the right cutoff of of hypertension for women? Are we we using even the right numbers? I think, you know, as I've always was taught that when you think you know something, go back and look at what the literature actually was based on, and you'll find that you actually made a lot of assumptions. And we know what we say about assumptions, you know. <laughs> um, so we we really need to really question ourselves about things that we thought. And if you want to go back in time, and you guys are too young to remember this, but 2001 was a really important year when we think about cardiovascular disease in women, because in 2001, the Women's Health Initiative results were released. Well, you guys may not even know this, but the number one prescription in 2001 was hormone replacement therapy. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And overnight in July, I forget the exact date, but overnight that was no longer the number one prescription in the United States. And we finally had done a study that included women and looked at a drug that so many women were taking and that they were told it was the fountain of youth. And then we find out, guess what? It's not the fountain of youth. And it wasn't the magic that we thought. And it certainly didn't save women's hearts at all. Again, it isn't just estrogen. It's it's biologic. It's being a woman probably some hormone effect, but not the only thing. It's aging and it's how women age compared to how men age. And there's probably women normative values and there's probably male normative values. And we need to stop grouping ourselves. Dr. Galati, I'm loving this conversation because it's reminding me of a concept that you've taught up before, um, this concept of moving beyond the bikini line. In that in the past, gender-associated health differences were all thought about from the perspective of reproductive health. But clearly, as you said earlier in this conversation, that that genetic difference is in every cell. And so reproductive differences may not be the underpinning of all of our health differences. Yeah, absolutely. I I think we're just more complicated than our reproductive system. So much to probably men's chagrin, but um, there's there's a lot, there's, there's even, we're even more complicated. So I, I think that that these are why we need to study women. This this is why we need to be included in the trials. This is why fifty two percent of your population should not be categorized as a special population as it was in the past. I don't know if you guys know that, but that was how in guidelines we used to be. There was the guidelines, and then there were special populations. And you know, there's lots of special populations that are you know small segments of our society, but women used to be categorized in that. And so no no wonder people didn't always use guideline directed therapy towards women if they didn't think they were studied or didn't think it applied because that was often the case. That was super helpful. Thank you so much. I'm going to bring us back to our very real case with Dr. Picasso, who may have overheard our conversation because he decided to monitor Jacqueline Flowers overnight. And much to his surprise, her troponin values rose, peaked, and then fell 
On EKG, she had sinus tack with nonspecific ST changes, and an echo showed a depressed ejection fraction with an inferior wall motion abnormality. She underwent coronary angiography, which revealed a thrombotic occlusion of the distal right coronary artery, and she did well after percutaneous coronary intervention with a drug-eluting stent, and she ended up being discharged with close follow-up and cardiac rehab. Wow. I am so glad we dodged a bullet there. And Dr. Picasso, I'm sure, is very happy as well. This really makes me wonder how many events go missed or untreated. Dr. Gulati, when women present with chest pain, how well do we do with making an accurate and timely diagnosis and instituting appropriate treatment? How do outcomes in women compare to men, especially when it regards to chest pain? Yeah, you know, this is always an issue, unfortunately, still for women in terms of both their symptoms being taken seriously. And, you know, we we earlier talked about atypical chest pain, if you will, even though I don't like that term. But even when a woman presents typically, it's still, and especially when they're young, there's a lot of uh, delays in care and there's discrepancies in care based on sex. So, you know, when we look at some of our data, things like get with the guideline data, how how well some of the best hospitals in the United States perform in terms of their care of patients who have a myocardial infarction. And, and we repeatedly see these sex differences in how we, you know, affect women's care after a myocardial infarction. Women are less likely to get uh, the early medical therapy, whether that's aspirin and beta blocker within the first 24 hours, or women are less likely to undergo any type of invasive therapies. They're less likely to meet the door-to-needle times or door-to-balloon times that are standards that are set for us to achieve. And the only thing that women tend to do better than men is die. And we know that specifically for ST elevation myocardial infarction group, that's where it really stays. And we keep looking at this data over and over since we started this collection of data and we see it persisting And, and it's always showing it's worse to be a woman and specifically it's worse to be a black woman. The black women tend to get even worse treatment if that's possible in terms of the aggressiveness of therapy. And there's some data supporting younger women not getting as good of therapy because we're always interested in younger women because they actually have worse outcomes after myocardial infarction. But in general, get with the guideline data, the NCDR data has really shown yeah, younger women, we, they're a smaller cohort, but in general, it was just women. And other things that get with the guideline have shed is that even upon discharge, women are less likely to receive lipid lowering therapy. They're less likely to even leave the hospital with controlled blood pressure. And there's really no excuse for that. And we know that that at least partially contributes to worse outcomes. We know women are more likely to be rehospitalized after an acute myocardial infarction. And specifically, it's the younger women who are even more likely to be rehospitalized. There's a lot of reasons for that. It may be that younger women are not getting the right medical care, like the right discharge meds. They may also be less likely to refer to cardiac rehabilitation or adhere to cardiac rehabilitation for numerous reasons of which we can get into. And there's more post-myocardial infarction depression, which can ultimately affect women deciding to adhere to their medications or go to cardiac rehab as well. So there's a lot of issues. It's such a complex interplay of delays of them getting treatment, unfortunate 
things from the medical community where they don't get good therapy. And ultimately that results in them having worse outcomes. So I I don't even know if I now even answered your question properly. I can just tell you that these are the things that affect women. Symptoms are one part of the equation, but how we as the healthcare team approach women is also slightly different. I'm just amazed that even something as simple as blood pressure management were falling behind. I mean, I thought we had that covered. Yes, so did I. Um, (laughs) Oh my gosh, yeah. After myocardial infarction, at least that, you know, we actually, if you just look at the general population, I don't, you know, just everyone with hypertension, we actually aren't doing as bad with women as we are. Actually, that's where a difference is in just general management. We, I would say we actually do better with women and particularly African-American women, but we do poorly overall. But after myocardial infarction, we tend to take risk factors a lot more seriously, right? That's where we can address and save lives. And so that group, we need to be doing exceptionally well. And that group, we are not specifically women. Oh my God. That's such a failure on uh, collectively. We are even give, being given a warning sign and we're not taking advantage of it and just applying it to this population at risk. Yikes. And and I think if we look at women and where, where are the things that we can simply make a difference, I think like, you know, there's a lot of complex. We need more research. We need everything else done. But where can we right here and now make a change in our daily practice as whether you're a fellow, whether you're an attending, is simply looking down. Did I give everything that is part of the guideline-directed medical therapy to this person? This person, doesn't matter if they're male or female. What we know right now that saves lives, did I give it to this patient who had a heart attack? If I did, I've done right by them. It doesn't matter if they're male or female. We will save more lives. Doesn't matter if they're black or white or what color they are. Doesn't matter if they're male or female. Let's treat them all equally. Let's have a checklist, have, have a double check on what we think we're doing and make sure we're doing it right. Because what these national databases help us with is saying, do we really do what we think we're doing? And if we're not, that's how we correct our behavior. Absolutely. You you definitely highlight a lot of gaps that remain within research and there's so much that we don't know, but you're absolutely right. At the bare minimum, we should at least be doing the goal-directed therapy and management that we do know about. Um, so our next two imaginary patients are in the CCU. Mona Lisa is a 26-year-old woman admitted with newly depressed ejection fraction two weeks after childbirth. She's diagnosed with peripartum cardiomyopathy, but unfortunately now in cardiogenic shock on ECMO support. Next door is Mary Cassatt, a 34-year-old woman admitted with an anterior ST elevation MI, diagnosed with left anterior descending spontaneous coronary artery dissection, found to have fibromuscular dysplasia on the basis of vascular imaging. The CCU staff, including Dr. Da Vinci, cannot remember the last time a man came in with SCAD. He also can't remember the last time a man was admitted with peripartum cardiomyopathy. (laughs) Okay, okay. okay. I'm getting the point, everyone. Women aren't just men with a Y chromosome. Clearly, there are genuine pathophysiologic differences. I mean, like Dr. Galati said, 
there's a genetic difference in every cell. And so there are therefore clearly conditions that are either specific to or more common in women. Dr. Galati, what should practicing cardio nerds know about these conditions? And when should we be activating these diagnoses? Yeah, well, I mean, I also wanted to point out that men can't get pregnant. So, you know, that also is an issue that's different <laughs> as well. But, but that aside, I, I think, it, you know, SCAD has taught us a lot um, because a spontaneous coronary artery dissection, you know, people really didn't know what was happening, but it was commonly being seen. If it was being seen, it was being seen in young women often, uh, sometimes related to postpartum states. And I think that that, you know, that has taught us a lot about something that is extremely more likely in women than it is in men. And then the peripartum cardiomyopathy, again, would only happen to women, but yet is such a critical issue. Like the patient that you're giving, the hypothetical patient can be on ECMO and it can be life or death, as can SCAD. I mean, there's many cases that people will describe and they don't even survive. And so both are really great cases for us to understand that they're not just mild diseases or something that you don't need to worry about. Sort of this idea that that the things that are different about women aren't things that would kill them. Actually, both of those diseases can actually kill women and kill young women. Those are like the things that I want at least people to recognize that these are, are major issues. And I think, you know, even broken heart syndrome or Takotsubo's or stress cardiomyopathy, now we have three different names for it. But that's something as well that you know, a lot of people say, oh, that just recovers, you know, it's a, right, right. but actually there's some patients who go on and don't recover. And there's people that go on and have multiple episodes of uh, stress cardiomyopathy. And it's very concerning because we don't even have enough data yet to tell them what the consequences might be, whether they're going to have it again or not. And every time they feel chest pain, just like a SCAD patient, they worry, is this, you know, where's this going to take me? Do I go to the emergency room? Are they going to do nothing? Do I call the doctor? What do I do about this? And this is, again, our evolving area that we're trying to learn a lot more about. Thank you for that, Dr. Galati. And I, you know, I really appreciate this conversation because uh, so far we've highlighted that there are differences both in risk factors and diseases. And I liked how you categorize these in one of your review papers in talking about female predominant risk factors, female specific risk factors, and on the disease side, female specific diseases and female predominant diseases. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times we get, as cardiologists, we're traditionally looking for obstructive disease and sometimes you're going to have very serious conditions and they're not going to have obstructive lesions. And I think we like obstructive coronary artery disease because we know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. These kind of put us in a different category of non-obstructive coronary artery disease, or whether it's an MI, then it's Minoka. If it's no MI, but ischemia, it's Anoka. But we do that. Those are still very broad categories. And it's just that we don't know enough about these individual conditions entirely to say, okay, this is how we treat it. This is what the natural evolution of it is. You know, here's the, we're learning. And that that's also important for us to know. But it's also the area that I think physicians are most uncomfortable with. We like to be able, we're cardiologists. We like to be able to quote, this is, you know, this is what's going to happen, the natural history. This is, you know, if we do the right thing with by you, you're going to, you know, go on and you're not going to have any issues if I can help you with your risk factors. We don't know that for these conditions. 
Well, thank you for that, Dr. Gladi. That's uh, something we definitely will always keep in mind going forward. Anyhow, I am definitely getting the picture and learning the lessons about how complicated cardiovascular care is for women and the need for dedicated strategies to bridge gaps in knowledge, care, and outcomes, which is why we're doing this whole episode in the first place. I happen to be seeing Jacqueline Flowers in clinic, and I want to maximize her secondary prevention because I now know I'm not going to miss another opportunity with this particular patient. So her blood pressure is going to be, I'll just let you know because I know these things, 143 over 92 millimeters of mercury. And her lipid panel is less than optimized with a total cholesterol of 220, triglycerides of 160, HDL 32, and LDL of 156, all in milligrams per deciliter. Dr. Gladi, what would your approach be to lipid and blood pressure management in this woman? Are there any gender-specific differences here, or should I treat her like any patient as secondary prevention? Well, for women, I hope the first question, especially because remember this was a young patient, the first question I would want to ask her is, are they planning to have children? Because, of course, family planning and what medications you can use in this patient will become an issue. If it isn't right now, it might not be the here and now for her, but long term, you have to have a plan. And so the here and now, she's had a myocardial infarction. She has a stent. For a while, you're going to actually talk about what are you going to do to prevent yourself from getting pregnant and what's safe for her as well in terms of those family planning issues. Because, I mean, again, you don't want to give her something necessarily like a birth control pill, if it's going to make her more hypercoagulable, for example, you might talk with her OB about what just happened and is an IUD maybe more appropriate for her versus an oral contraceptive. But then long-term, you need to know, is she going to plan on having kids? Because one, if she, I, I didn't remember if you said she's on a statin, I'll presume you did right by her and put her on a statin, but certainly you don't want her getting pregnant on a statin. If she is on an ACE inhibitor because she had a myocardial infarction and had some damage to her left ventricle, again, that's not something long-term if she's going to get pregnant that is going to be appropriate. Now, in terms of management, of course, her lipids are terrible and her blood pressure, she left the hospital like a lot of women with poorly controlled blood pressure. So you need to get that under control. But Again, taking into account these sex-specific considerations of what medications you want to use and the fact that she had a myocardial infarction, you're going to have to know about some of the issues related to her medication. So women are more likely, if she is on an ACE inhibitor, a woman is more, three times more likely than a man to develop an ACE-related cough. So hopefully you already have asked her how she's doing with her new medications. You know, is there anything she's noticed? That's important part of our history taking. If you're going to use a calcium channel blocker for blood pressure alone, maybe you wouldn't have been her because she had a myocardial infarction. But if she, if you do, remember women are more likely to get peripheral edema. So again, important to know. If they're on a diuretic, a diuretic is super useful to get blood pressure control, has minimal side effects in general from a patient's perspective. But what you might notice in her labs are women are more likely to get hyponatremic and hypokalemic from thiazides. But maybe if you have them on that in an ACE inhibitor, you have no issues. So um, it's not that you have to avoid it. You just have to be looking for it. 
And uh, men, on the other hand, are more likely to get gout from thiazide diuretics. So, you know, that that's important when you're taking care of men. And men, of course, are more likely to report sexual dysfunction with beta blockers and thiazide diuretics as well. You know, again, it's important to know the differences. And then for a young woman who maybe she says to you, you know, okay, fine, uh, I understand I need to be on all these medications at least for a year, but you know, I'm still a young woman. I haven't had any kids so, or she has had one because you told me about preeclampsia. <laughs> so maybe she's had one, but she's like, we were planning on having another kid. When can I have another child? But you know, what's going to be mm. exposed to the fetus and what's going to be exposed in breast milk because I breastfed my last child. And it's important to tell everyone that, you know, what medication do they have to be on lifelong? What ones do actually go to the the fetus, which is literally everything? Um, but which ones do we think are relatively safe and which ones are not? And then for breastfeeding, a lot of women will ask you, so you better be prepared to talk about that, especially from a hypertensive standpoint. Every drug you use for hypertension goes through the to breast milk, except for propranolol and nifedipine. And so, you we all need to be familiar. If you're taking care of women, you got to kind of have either if you can't remember it, have them up as charts in the the room where you see patients, or have them available easily on your smartphone so you can talk about it. Do some shared decision making together about what does she feel comfortable being on. What are we going to do in this short term next year? Then if she wants to have a child, it may not, you may advise against it, but the fact is women are going to do what they want to do. And I've learned that, that you, you can't make that decision for them. So be prepared that those questions are going to be asked. That's really wonderful, Dr. Gulati. So in summary, we have learned that women are not the same as men, Amit. Um, <laughs> women can present often, you know, with the classical symptoms of chest pain. They might, though, have additional symptoms in conjunction with the classic chest pain symptoms. Um, and there are certain risk factors that predispose women to cardiovascular disease that we've gone over, and this is not necessarily too associated with the loss of estrogen in menopause. As you mentioned, uh, what we learned with hypertension and systolic blood pressure, that these changes and differences manifest themselves very early on. And what we need to make sure that we're doing is encouraging clinical trials and, and researchers and us as investigators to really be asking questions about what we don't know uh, with regards to the pathophysiology presentation of disease management, medication use in women as compared to men, and make sure that we're enrolling more women, but at the very least be treating women with the appropriate guideline-directed medical therapy that we do have. That's a great summary. <laughs> Thank you. That you are a great teacher. <laughs> yeah, Corrine keeps me uh, very focused in fellowship during lectures, and she kind of boils it down for me at the end. I have a really bad case of attention deficit disorder. <laughs> She's fantastic. <laughs> I think the, the important thing is like just to remember when you're looking at literature, one of the first things that I do, and maybe obviously I'm a little biased, but I first glance at how many women were enrolled and to say, like, you know, do we, does this really apply to both men right. and women? How generalizable is it? 
Exactly. And then the other thing is, is, you know, I showed a slide about when I was, I think I showed it at Hopkins was that, you know, what studies have we included women in trials? And we've, we've included women in trials quite well related to now hypertension, pulmonary hypertension. And that the, both of those diseases, we, we've actually enrolled a fair number of women, but common things being common, heart failure and anything related to coronary artery disease, whether you talk about acute coronary syndrome or just coronary disease in general, we haven't included enough women. And yet that's the commonest things you'll see. Mm-hmm. So that maybe is why we have more questions about what we do in coronary artery disease for women than men, because maybe some people are assuming they don't apply to women. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You know, there's women's cardiovascular health as patients, but then there's also this whole gender disparity of women within cardiology. And I recently had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Aaron Mikos give a Grand Rounds talk about recruiting women into cardiology and I learned that it has the least number of women physicians compared to other fields, second only to orthopedic surgery, which has the least women overall. And, you know, I'm a second year medicine resident. I once considered pursuing cardiology fellowship along the way. I really fell in love with diagnostic medicine and medical education. And now I'm planning on a career as an academic hospitalist. But all this made me wonder what made you choose a career in cardiology in the first place? What unexpected turns and challenges have influenced your career? Yeah, so I decided to do cardiology because when I was a medical student, I remember sitting in a lecture, a very famous American came to Canada and spoke at my medical school, and her name was Dr. Nanette Wanger. And Dr. Wanger came, and um, back then, you know, she was actually the first person to coin that term about bikini medicine. And she pointed out to us that we really knew nothing at that time about women's hearts. I was so shocked by that because actually in my family, I would say the women, men might get heart disease, but they don't necessarily die from it at young ages. Whereas my, the women in my family, nobody makes it past the age of 50 and they die from heart disease or stroke. And so I remember sitting there, it's almost like my, I didn't know that. I mean, I was very naive medical student, like I'm just going to learn all the answers here in medical school and then go out and treat people. And then I realized like we hadn't even included women in trials. I'm like, well, no wonder. So I was like, that was Mm. that day. I remember saying, I'm going to be a cardiologist and I'm actually only going to study women's hearts. And, and, and I, to this day, I actually, my own, my patient population, my clinic patient population is only women. I feel very fortunate to be doing what I really imagined myself doing. And it's not to say it wasn't without obstacles. There was obstacles and there still are obstacles on a daily basis. But I think that it is such a wonderful career. I mean, you have more options in cardiology than you have in any other field. You can be in academics, you can be in private practice, you can be part-time, even though people don't always know that. You can have a more academic career. You can have a career where you take less call because you choose a pathway with less call, but you don't have to. And and just being a woman doesn't mean that you want less call. And there's times in our life that you might need less, but sometimes for men that will become important too. We also need to work to make cardiology more family friendly because it will benefit men and it will benefit women actually equally. The younger generation, the millennial generation, actually men and women both want more of a family life. They don't actually want more money. They want equal pay for equal work, but they they actually want quality of life 
as well. And we, and you know, that's going to make cardiology better for all of us if we start listening to them. You know, the other thing I just want to point out, yes, orthopedics is the only specialty that recruits less women than us. That's not really a flag in our cap because urology is able to recruit more women than us. And and you, all of us know that that isn't necessarily anatomically the only thing that women necessarily want to deal with every day. And I will say OB-GYN as well. OB-GYN is, is so unpredictable. Your life, you're always on call and at work hours are really different. And yet more women there. E- emergency, a lot of shift work, more women are there. Women are not scared of work. And so there's nothing unique about cardiology that has scared them away. It's our way of us presenting it to the outside world. When we only show the face of cardiology to be predominantly men, if leaders are predominantly men, if speakers are predominantly men, if journal editors are predominantly men, women do not see themselves in that role. If they don't have role models, we need more of us out there working every day, encouraging our younger colleagues that this is something enjoyable and something that we are passionate about. and We have fun every day. And if we make our environment better for women and men and more welcoming to everyone, of, and it's not just women and men, we need more diversity in our field. That is what is going to make people see, I can be like that person. I am like that person. I am going to enter that career. Cardi- this onus is on us. The onus is on the cardiology field to open those doors and make everyone feel welcome. That's the way we'll change it. That's how we'll take better care of our patients. Our patients are diverse and we don't learn about the things that affect certain populations or certain segments of our community without having people in our field saying, hey, you know what? The reason that they didn't take their medication when you called them non-compliant, it was because they couldn't afford their medication or they were waiting for their paycheck. That's why, you know, their their welfare check. I, I came here as a, a Canadian. I didn't understand all of that. And I had to learn that. Actually, I learned it from my patients on the south side of Chicago who explained to me why they had to discharge themselves against medical advice because they, if they couldn't get their check, they couldn't pay their bills, let alone mm. their medication. And I remember uh, that was honestly an eye opener for me. It wasn't something I ever thought about. And I, now I negotiate with my patients. What if I let you go home, get that, come back and we work it out and they know I understand them a little bit more, but I just want them to go home and get the check and come back and let me take care of them. We, that I learned that, but again, we need to have our whole diverse community out there teaching us things and helping our patients feel like I can trust that doctor because they look like me or they sound like me or they're from my community. And that's how we're going to change things and we'll change it together. But we cannot rest in cardiology thinking, well, we have a women in cardiology group or, you know, we've. We, we try to recruit them. They don't come. We need to be banging down the doors. We need to be yanking the person who just said, I'm going to go into <laughs> hospital medicine. No, 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 no. You, you, you've made a mistake. The more fun <laughs> is come and be a cardiologist, be an intensivist, then be, be the, the, you know, run the CCU for us. Tell us 
how to get you there. What, why didn't you choose our career over the one you chose? What was it so that I don't make the mistake with the next young woman that was flirting with cardiology? Because you should fall in love with cardiology because it's awesome. <laughs> I think we'll all agree that cardiology is awesome. And I just have to say that this has been such an incredible discussion. I've sure learned my lesson about the importance of women's cardiovascular health. And actually, I learned uh, quite a bit while I was preparing these questions, Dr. Gladi, from your prior publications and talks, of which there have been a lot. But something particularly stuck with me, and I want to mention it just because of how happy it made my wife. In one of your talks, you quoted George Carlin saying that women are crazy, men are stupid. And the main reason women are crazy is that men are stupid. And I just feel like my wife, Riddhi, could relate to this just a little bit too well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I want to make sure everyone knows that a man—that's quoting a man—because sometimes I get <laughs> in trouble um, when people say that. That like I said it, George Carlin. No. Said it. <laughs> no, no, this is definitely a safe space. So, Dr. Galati, um, we have been focused on cardiology in our podcast, but we decided earlier on that our mission statement would also include promotion of wellness and, um, and among some of the other things that we do. So we have implemented a segment where listeners can call in and tell us what's making them uh, excited about their work uh, in the healthcare environment. It can be anybody. We've had orthopedic surgeons call. We've had, you know, reproductive endocrinology call. We've had nursing call. We've had medical students call, uh, ophthalmologists call. We're just excited about the variety of different callers. We call this segment, What's Making My Heart Flutter. So is there anything that's making your heart flutter? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> like in a, in a good way, right? Yeah, like what's making you excited? What's uh, what's like basically like refueling your engines at work? Well, it probably happens before work because I am pretty religious about running. Um, and so in terms of what keeps me sane and keeps me going and motivated and healthy... I do, I, I'm all about prevention and wellness. And the thing I have to live, I have to be the example to my patients. So for me, the biggest thing is that every morning I wake up and it doesn't, you could ask me, do you take days of rest? I don't. Every day, me and my dog, Binkley, who's mm. sitting here on the couch next to me, we go running every morning and he needs it every day. So I stopped the whole idea that I needed a couple of days a week of rest. He's told me that we don't get rest. We get up at 5 a.m. earlier when it's hot in the desert and we go running every day. And I think that's what keeps me moving every day and like excited and energized and positive and um, at least brings my stress down. I think when I'm at work, sometimes there is stressful days. I mean, when you're chief of cardiology, there can be fun days and there can also be really things that really deflate you. And I think you, you have to also sometimes go back to your office and mentally regroup and remember why you're here. Remember the things that make you happy. Meditate and think about those good things, whether it's your family, whether it's the job that we're so fortunate to have, whether it's the sunshine that came out today. Those little things, like remembering one good thing that happened every day, it's something I remind myself. It's a sign in my office. What is the one good thing that happened today? Find something because that can make your day so much better. And, and it, it can remind you that not everything is bad when you're having a bad day. 
Dr. Gulati, this has been such an awesome conversation with you. We've learned so much. We've talked about so many relevant, amazing cardiovascular topics, but also thank you so much for sharing all of the more personal stuff about why you went into cardiology and just such great general life advice. Um, thank you for your time and thank you for talking with us. Oh, yeah, Dr. Gulati, you are, you are an all-star. This was like such a wonderful uh, episode. I, I'm just so excited to continue producing it with Amit and team. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on this. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. Oh my God, that episode was legit amazing. You see, Amit, I've been telling you this for years. A focus on women's cardiovascular health is just so important. Yeah, Amit. I told you that on it. the script. <laughs> you guys are the worst. Never again. Never again.